Turn in that one with us. Psalm 133 is where we'll be starting out this morning. Good to be with you guys. Uh, missed you the last couple weeks after being like, after two weeks out of the pulpit, I started to get a little antsy. All right, itching to be back, so I'm glad to be back and to be sharing with you guys. Uh, we will go to Acts. We'll end up in Acts, uh, continuing our walk through the book of Acts. And so we're in the middle of a sermon series right now where we're just going kind of methodically through Acts. But I thought we would start in Psalm 133 and use that as kind of a lens by which uh, to read Acts 18, which is where we'll be um, uh, later today uh, when we, we head there. I want to start this morning with a word for you guys from God. Um, I want us to, to start thinking through this. Oftentimes, good and, and blessing and things of that nature come in unexpected places. Um, and when we think of Advent, right, you think of, of this baby boy who's born um, in very not spectacular circumstances. Um, and then this baby boy is born, and this is the hope of the world. This is what all of history is turning on, this baby boy being born in a manger, it's unexpected. You and I would not have thought that up. I think if I'm thinking up how God's going to come into creation and rescue everything, redeem it, bring salvation, set up his kingdom, I'm not thinking up the story that's told in the Gospels. I'm not thinking up the incarnation. I'm not thinking up definitely this kind of seemingly small itinerant ministry. We're sure Jesus gets some crowds every now and then, but he manages to say all the wrong things to drive them away. And I'm, I'm definitely not thinking up the cross. I'm definitely not thinking up God himself becoming a human and dying. I mean, those, that's not what's coming from my imagination. Um, but, but the salvation, this light, comes in, in unexpected ways, in unexpected places. And then as we continue on through the story, Jesus raises, he, he resurrects, and he ascends into heaven. And then there's this thing that's created. And it wasn't in existence before, but now it's here. It's been created. And it's called the church. It's the community that follows and worships Christ. And I would not have thought up the church. That would not be my idea. I don't think I have an imagination large enough to think of such a diverse group of people from all walks of life with all these different problems and rough edges and brokenness coming together and them being the people of God. What I want to direct your attention to this morning is that you, this, FC Cubed, is God's idea. And it might seem unlikely. And it might seem unexpected. Unexpected people, an unexpected place. But this small group of people who get together and who worship, and who share life together, and who laugh together, and who cry together, and who meet in this rinky-dink building, and who worship, and you read the scriptures, and you stack up chairs after the service, this is God's community. In, in God's imagination, from all of eternity, he thought up a community that would exist in Sugarland, Texas. And I think the scriptures would say this was his plan all along, to have this community, to have this group of people that would exist in all kinds of different shapes and forms and expressions all over the globe throughout all of time, but that this would be where God would be present, where God would unveil himself, where God would Send his blessing. I want you to look at Psalm 133 with me, okay? This is one of my favorite poems um, in the Psalter, in the book of Psalms. Um, real powerful. Uh, Psalm 133. You'll see the superscription says it's a song of ascents. So this is a song that the Jewish people would have sung going up, ascending. The temple, which they would have pilgrimed to um, each year, is on a mountain. It's on a hill. So you literally would walk up 
okay, to go to get to it. And they had these little songs that they would listen to to kind of get them jazzed up and ready to go worship at the temple. Um, this is one of them of David. And listen to what they're singing about, okay? Behold how good, nay, my tove. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Behold how good, tove. Behold how beautiful it is. Behold how majestic, behold how pleasant, behold how satisfying it is. When brothers dwell in unity, when there's this group of people, God's people, and they live life together in harmony, when the sons and daughters of God share life. And so the psalm is going to give us two similes it's, it's to explain and, and to show how good and pleasant this life is, this shared life of community together. It's like this. It's like this. The first one in verse 2. It's like this dwelling in unity, this parting, this, this living together. It's like oil. Maybe not what I would have come up with if I was putting forth similes. It's like a, a rare steak. A nice glass of wine or grape juice, if we're, I know we're in church. <laughs> he says it's like oil. It's like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robe. So the picture we get here is this guy is just being drenched in oil, okay? And it might seem weird to us, but oil is this um, sign of God's anointing and his spirit and his presence. And you would have anointed people as this way of showing God's blessing on them. And, and oil was expensive and rare, and so, so usually there'd be this very little amount of oil used in anointing. Um, but this is this extravagant picture, right? It's hyperbole. It's way over the top. This guy has got like gallons of of oil just being poured all over him. He's drenched with it. And, and the psalm says, community, brothers, sons and daughters of God dwelling together. It's like this guy just being drenched in oil, the spirit coming powerfully, God's blessings flowing uninhibited. It's like oil. And he says it like this, it's like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. It's like when you wake up in the morning and on the mountain of Zion where the temple is located, there's dew and this dew waters the mountain and feeds the grass and creates life. Life that would sustain, life that would create an environment for the temple, for the presence of God to be there. And then he says this, for there. And, and so I'm, if you're an underline or circler, I would underline, circle, mark, star, highlight that there, okay? Because that's a really important word. What is that there? Because it says, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing. And then he explains the blessing. Life forevermore, eternal life. Where is eternal life to be found? Is it found on the mountain of Zion where the dew falls? Well, yes, there's blessing there. The temple resides there. And is it found when oil is being poured on someone's head? Well, yes, that's the anointing of the spirit. But both of those things are pointing back to something else. For there, when brothers are dwelling in unity, when there's a community of people who are living life together, there God has commanded. There God has built into the fabric of creation and salvation itself for there to be blessing, life forevermore. And I would even argue nowhere else. This was God's idea. Broken, messy, regular, everyday people who dwell in unity, who live life together. That's where God's blessing is. That's where eternal life is is found. FC cubed is, is God's idea. This is God's idea. Regular people like you and I in an unexpected place 
God's blessing being found, his eternal life being given. And so I think we, we live in kind of a culture and a time where we have largely, I think, bought into Western kind of individualism. Okay, so it's, it's me and we think of, we think of the church this way, right? The church is about simply a place where I can express my relationship to God. I have this personal relationship, and y'all just happen to have the same sort of personal relationship, right? We're like, Facebook, we're like mutual Facebook friends of Jesus, okay? There's nothing that really connects me to you. We're just both happen to be connected to the same person. We have this kind of individualism. It goes all the way through kind of everything we think about Christianity. I think, though, we've got to get rid of that. We've got to step outside of that. I think God's blessing is not found there. I think God's blessing is found in community. And so if we were to think through what is community, this kind of biblical dwelling in unity eternal life community I would say a few things community is okay community is eating meals together I think this is where biblical community starts I think if you're missing out on biblical community this is where you'd want to start eating meals together I think community is a small group of people even smaller than this small group I would think who pray together who pray for each other and with each other who pray together. You see, I think we've got some signs. I think we've got some, some signs of what community is and where it happens, where this blessing's found, that we could be able to sit down and say, okay, I've got a community. I've got a group of people. We do this. We do this. We do this. That's not there. That's there. That's not there. That's there. I think eating together. I think praying together. I think reading the scriptures together. Reading the scriptures for one another, with one another, discussing and commenting on the scriptures together. I think community is confession and accountability. Confessing my sins to my brothers and sisters, being held accountable to them. Community is the one place in the world where it's possible for truth to be present. In your business place, truth does not thrive. You're trying to get ahead. You're trying to hide your faults. You're trying to to hide the the faults of your business. In politics, in the political arena, truth does not thrive. We can all agree on that one. Sometimes in your families, truth does not thrive. But the church is the place where God has imagined up a community of people who would learn how to tell the truth. The truth about myself, with all my faults and all my sins, and the truth about the people around me. Why? Because we've got nothing to lose. There's nothing on the table here. We all come to the same table, under the same cross, worshiping the same Lord, receiving the same amount of grace and forgiveness. And so I can be truthful about who I am. You can be truthful about who you are. Community is a place where there's confession, accountability. Community is not a place, I would say, where um, there's just kind of the social fun happening. I think it, it, there, there is social fun. I think there is this kind of shared interest in community, in biblical community, but it's more than that, right? It's not just like a hobby or a club or a group like that. I think a community is not a group that thinks and acts just like you, okay? Um, it's not the people that you would have been friends with anyway. So this is, this is really interesting. And one of the cool things I think about being a Christian, at least for me, is... I mean, the church is so diverse, and there's so many different people. And I think part of being a Christian is continually realizing you have friends that you didn't know you had. So you, you meet someone, and they're different from you. And then you come to find out y'all are actually in the same family. All right, I, I meet friends all the time that I never knew I had, right? But I've, I've had them, and we have this, this thing in common. That the church was created by Jesus. Different people, Right? It's not something that would have existed without him. It's not just the people that we're naturally drawn to or attracted to. Um, and then the last thing I would say, community is not something that's convenient for you or that's easy for you, right? 
if, if your idea of community is something that um, gets avoided or gets, gets somehow put aside if life gets busy or tough or things like that, you don't have community. You have another thing in a litany of things that you have in your life that you manipulate for your own selfish purposes. Okay? Community is, is family. It's brothers and sisters. It's people you, you fight to the death with. It's people you live with. Okay? And the Psalms are saying this is where God's blessing is found. And I do think this is written into the fabric of creation and the fabric of salvation. God creates around Jesus and at Pentecost, the church, this group of very broken, very messed up, very messy people in this messy, broken, messed up community who somehow get together to take communion and to worship and to read the scriptures. And in so doing, they find the blessing. They find life forever. So let's flip to Acts chapter 18, okay? As we continue on in the book of Acts, I want to highlight um, the ways that God is blessing the community in Acts 18. We've been reading through Acts as this attempt to, to understand what the church is supposed to be and what the church is like. We see that the church exists to be a witness to the resurrection. So we worship, we grow, and then we, we stand as this testimony to the world that Christ has raised. Our lives are lives that aren't possible unless Christ has raised. We testify to the truth of what God has done through Christ and is now doing through the Spirit. And, and one big part of being the church, okay, is community. It's this, this band of brothers. It's this dwelling together. <coughs> And I want us to watch this theme play out through um, Corinth, when Paul is in Corinth, okay? Uh, we'll see, I think, three things that God blesses the community with. Um, so we'll pick it up. We'll start reading Acts chapter 18, verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens. So remember, we were just there. Paul was debating with the philosophers. Um, he, he leaves and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. So we know around 50 AD or so in the first century, um, Claudius kicks out most of the Jews in Rome because there had been some riots about this guy named Christus, which most people think is Christ. So you have the Christians and the Jews, and perhaps there's some bickering, some problems there. I mean, we've seen the problems, right, when Paul goes to a synagogue Maybe that's starting to happen in Rome, and Claudius says, just get out of here, okay? And so, so Priscilla and Aquila had been kicked out as well, and they made their way to Corinth where they made a home. And he, Paul, went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked. Perhaps he was their employer or, or an employee of theirs. For they were tent makers by trade, and he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. So this is the first time Luke in the book of Acts has told us about Paul's trade. He was a tent maker. And we might get the impression, so far reading through the book of Acts, that when Paul went to a city, all he did was kind of this 100% evangelism, okay? So he's in the synagogues, he's preaching, he's debating, he's teaching, and things like that. But if you were going to read his letters, we'd find out, even in the places we've been so far, Paul goes, and one of the first things he does, even before maybe he goes to the synagogue, is he goes and finds a place to work, he goes and finds a place to set up shop. He was a tent maker. And in the ancient world, that would have been more than just tents. Would have included that. But think of all kinds of different things you can make out of leather and, and goods of that nature. So he finds Priscilla and Aquila, who will end up being very good friends of his and, and very important people in the ministry. He starts working with them. And then, as usual, he goes to the synagogue, to the place where the Jewish people are worshiping, to try to persuade them. Now, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, his partners who he had been separated from, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. I love that, that kind of phrase and that kind of picture. It's almost like Paul was too busy. It's like, oh, hey, you made it, but I'm going somewhere, okay? Um, they, they finally catch up, and Paul's occupied. He's busy. He's doing something. 
Um, he's testifying to the Jews that the Messiah, the King of Israel, the, the promised one, is this man, Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. From now on, I'll go to the Gentiles. Again, this is his method of operation. He goes to the Jewish people, presents the truth, the announcement. If they reject it, he then goes to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justice, a worshiper of God, a God-feared. His, his house was next door to the synagogue. So he gets kicked out of the synagogue and goes and sets up shop right next door to it. This is what we call in your face. All right? Um, now, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with the entire household. So this big convert, the ruler of the synagogue, believes. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized the initiation right into the Christian community. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, don't be afraid, but go on speaking. Don't be silent for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you for I have many in the city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. So a church was born. A community was born. People believe or baptized. You've got the ruler of the synagogue. You've got this guy next door to the synagogue. You've got this group of people who are baptized in Paul, gets his vision from the Lord, a pretty important vision, we'll come back and talk about it, and he stays for a year and six months, and they eat together, and they pray together, and they work on problems together, and they read the scriptures together, and they argue with each other, and they have conflict, and there's miscommunication, and they take the Eucharist communion together, and they worship together, they're a church, they receive blessing. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, um, which is the larger province that Corinth is located in, the Jews made a unified attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names in your own law, see to it yourself. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all see Sosthenes. Poor guy here. He's not even a part of the story, okay? All we know about him is he gets beat up, okay, for no reason. The ruler of the synagogue and beat him in front of the tribunal. That's his part in the story. Random guy gets beat up. And we're told Gallio paid no attention to any of this. Stand-up guy, that Gallio. Number 18, verse 18. After this, Paul stayed many days longer, and then he's going to go on this kind of whirlwind tour, okay? They took leave of the brothers, set sail for Syria with him, Priscilla and Aquila. At Cancrea, he had his hair cut, for he was under a vow. Um, the best guess here, Cancrea is the port, so that's where you go to leave Corinth. The best guess is that when he received this vision, he decided to let his hair grow. It's kind of the, sa- the sign of the fact that he's been called to stay in Corinth. It's kind of this vow to himself or to the Lord. And then as he's leaving Corinth, now it's time to cut his hair. And they came to Ephesus and he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I'll return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. He will come back to Ephesus in chapter 19. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch, his home church, his base. And after spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next to the region of Galatia and Ferdia, strengthening all disciples. Now a Jew named Apollos... Now, he's going to be a very fascinating character in the church. A native of Alexandria came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit. He spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. So we don't know exactly what's going on here with Apollos. 
it seems like maybe he's not familiar with the fact that you baptize Christians in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Um, so he's still baptizing people in this kind of vague repentance baptism that John preached. We'll see some more of this in Ephesus uh, in the next chapter. Um, but he's a very eloquent man. He's a good speaker, okay? He's got this ministry of striving. He's very smart. He seems to know a whole lot about Jesus. So he's teaching accurately, except for this one thing about baptism. And he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. So they pull him aside and like, hey, uh, let's catch you up here. There's some things... You need to get down. And when he wished to cross to Ikea, back to Corinth, he wants to go where Paul was, which will cause some problems if you were to read First Corinthians. The brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing that by the scriptures, the Christ, the Messiah, the King of the Jews was Jesus. Okay. Three ways that God blesses the community here in uh, Acts chapter 18. Three ways that the blessing of eternal life is found through this group of people that's worshiping. The first one is this. God blesses the community with time. Time to grow. Time to mature. Time to, to turn into this new creation. Time to leave old habits time to figure things out. I think this is a really beautiful thing that sometimes we overlook in our fast-paced kind of culture, and, and it's the fact that Christians have been giving time. In fact, all the time in the world, all the time that, that could exist, I think the cross, if it teaches us anything, should teach us to be patient in a world that's impatient. That sometimes things don't work out the way we want them to, but we're not called to force the issue. We're called to trust God and let him raise us. To do our part and to leave the rest to him. So Corinth is a messy group of people, okay? Corinth is known in the ancient world for being this out-of-control town, all right? So I don't know what town maybe in America you don't want to connect that to, uh, but Corinth is a port city. So I'm told in port cities, because you've got these kind of sailors who come in and aren't the most stand-up of guys, and they're just there for a weekend or so, they've got lots of establishments where those sailors can go and fulfill some of their more sensual needs, okay, just for that weekend. And, and Corinth also was the home to the largest um, temple for the goddess of love, where you would go and worship by having sex with the temple prostitute, okay? And, and Corinth itself... Um, this is how bad Corinth was. So this is how you know if your city is maybe has crossed the line. There was a verb in, in ancient Greek okay, in the first century to Corinthianize. And it meant to do something sexually immoral. Okay? So they took the name of the city and made it a verb to doing something bad. All right? um, oh, you just sugar landed that. All right? that's, that's, how, that's how bad your city's gotten when I mean, the word is out. What happens in Vegas does not stay in Vegas. All right? Everyone knows. That's what Corinth is all about. They're this crazy, it's this melting pot city, okay? Every few years, there'll be these big Olympic-type games that come to Corinth. Would have been the perfect place for a tent maker, all right? Lots of tourists, lots of people who need some temporary shelter. But you've got some messy, 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 messy people in Corinth. And they're baptized, and they believe. And then they have no more problems anymore. Yeah. No, right? If you, if you were to read First and Second Corinthians, Paul's letters to the, Corin, uh, the Corinthians, um, 
who we have more words from Paul toward Corinth than any other church. And in fact, we know we're actually missing some letters that he wrote too. Uh, you, you find a, a church in Corinth that even after this extended amount of time that Paul spends with them has big problems. So they are practicing the Eucharist, the communion, right? Um, just like Paul taught them. But, but when they come to the Eucharist, the rich people are enjoying this big feast in the church. And then the poor people are kind of not having any at all. And they're using the Eucharist as a way to, to establish and strengthen these social divides. And Paul writes them and he's going, what are you doing? What, what in the world is happening among you? And then at Corinth, you've got these people who think they're just super spiritual. I can speak in tongues. I can prophesy. I can do all these things. But they're, they're using these spiritual gifts because they're so spiritual to beat down on other people and say, I'm wise and I'm spiritual and you're this kind of mortal junior varsity Christian. Stay away from me. I'm going to go feast with the real deal. And Paul writes to him and goes, you, you worship a Lord who is crucified. How spiritual and, and wise is that? And, and Paul writes that real famous wedding passage, right? 1 Corinthians 13, where he says, hey, speak in tongues all you want. If you don't love your brother or sister, it's worth nothing. Prophesy however much you want. If you don't love and serve your brother and sister, you're just this dancing monkey that no one cares about. These clanging gongs, right? And then in Corinth, there was, I mean, this is always kind of the icing on the cake. In Corinth, there's this guy who was having sex with his father's wife, his stepmom. And the Corinth church was celebrating this. They were rejoicing in it, okay? And, and, and this is Ethics 101. I would hope I don't have to explain this to you. Don't, that's not good, okay? Don't, don't do that. Leviticus 18 is pretty clear on the issue, all right? If you needed some scriptural basis for um, I'm not participating in that action. But they're, they're having that in their church. So, I mean, imagine in this community right here. I mean, this is real life. This is a group of people. Someone in this community is having sex with their father's wife, and we all know about it. And instead of doing some kind of church discipline or sitting down and talking to them about it and saying, hey, that's not right. Can we work this out? It makes things awkward at Sunday services, okay? They celebrate it. They're proud of it. They're boasting in it. We're not sure why they're boasting in it. Perhaps they're boasting in God's grace and like, look how evil this guy is and, and he's still accepted and loved, right? And Paul writes them like, no, 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 don't. You're embarrassing all of us. Don't do that. These are broken and messy people, but they've been given time. Time to grow and time to mature. And notice how Paul, he spends time with them. This is the most time he spent with one community as of yet. He, he stays there for at least a year and a half. And they eat and they drink and they laugh and they cry and they pray and they grow together. And they, yeah, they're messy, roughed up people and they have hard edges and they have things that seem like they're never going to conquer. But it's this community that Paul says Christ is displaying his glory in who are receiving salvation who have the spirit inside of them, even if they don't always understand what that means or should look like. They bring him time to grow and to worship. And then you've got Apollos who comes along and he starts, he starts speaking and, and getting this ministry and he's pretty good at it apparently. And, and then he gets corrected by Priscilla and Aquila. Interesting that a, a woman gets a hand, a role in, in correcting this, this big speaker from Alexandria. Luke loves pointing out um, how women get this kind of big role in the, in the church, how things are open to them that, that maybe weren't open to them before. And Apollos is corrected. He learns. He doesn't defend himself and he doesn't um, become stubborn. He says, I've got time to learn. 
I've got the ability to be truthful in this community and say, yeah, that, that was right. God's blessing comes in this community because they don't have to have it together in that one moment. Because they can learn and grow and receive correction from one another. The Lord has commanded his blessing to be there. Eternal life in this messed up group of people in Corinth. Where Paul comes and says, let's spend some time together. Let's have our lives be intertwined. So God, he blesses this community with time to grow and to mature. The second thing we might say is he, he blesses this community with a mission to fulfill. With people to reach around them. I love the phrase that, that Jesus says to Paul here in verse 10, verse 9 and 10. If you're looking, he says to Paul one night in a vision, don't be afraid, but go on speaking. Don't be silent for I'm with you and no one will attack you to harm you. And then this is kind of this haunting little phrase for I have many people here in the city. I have many in the city who are my people, perhaps who don't yet know it. Maybe Paul has it kind of in his blood. He hasn't been staying places for very long. So you kind of get that as part of who you are. And he's itching to go to the next city and start another church. And Jesus shows up and says, I need you to settle down here for a while. There are a lot of my people here. You need to find them. You need to live with them. You need to bless them. You need to grow together with them. I would wonder what would happen to us if we could have the same kind of imagination. If we could say and really believe Jesus has many people in the greater Houston area some of whom might not yet know that they're his people. Some of whom, 2 Corinthians 5 would say, God wants to talk to through you, his ambassadors, his mouthpieces. Or if we might be able to develop this imagination that, that in Sugarland, Texas, God has many who are his people. And your family, my family, God has many who are his people. And he wants me to slow down and open my eyes. And not be looking for the next bigger, more exciting thing. Or in your workplace, in your office, in your cubicle section, in your classroom. Jesus says, I have many there who are my people. He, he tasks the community with this mission. As, as being witnesses to the resurrection. As growing, as multiplying, as, as testifying to the beauty and life that's now available through Christ. And I also wonder what would happen if we shifted the way we think about evangelism, if we shifted the way we think about sharing the gospel from an individual mindset to a community mindset. What would be the implications if we did not think it was an individual's job to share the gospel, but it was a community's job to share the gospel? It was your community's job. My four or five brothers and sisters who I'm praying and eating and reading the scriptures with and confessing and holding accountable. What if it's not my job to go try to convince someone to be a Christian or to hand out tracts or to approach somebody, but there was a team of us? I think first it would take some pressure off. It would take some of the awkwardness away, okay? If you're anything like me, hopefully you're not, um, but if you're anything like me, if I'm by myself, I have a much harder time talking to someone about church, like starting up a random conversation with somebody, or about Jesus, or about the Spirit, or, or asking how I can pray for them, or, or anything like that. If I'm with somebody else, those conversations seem to happen much more naturally, much more comfortably. I mean, it makes sense, right? I've got a teammate. I've got someone with me. Even if that conversation fails, right, I'm not going to feel like I'm all alone and a loser, We've got someone else who I can talk to and we can kind of laugh about it. Like, yeah, they didn't, we're not interested in what we we're saying. There's this kind of team aspect to it. 
Um, I think if you were to look at the the best kind of sociological studies right now about how conversion happens. Um, so not even just conversion to Christian, but any religious movement, okay? Um, sociologists, people who study people and movements and things like that, um, have done studies on, on just how people are converted. So how does somebody go from being in one group to then at some point in their life saying they belong to another group? And they believe different things, they live a different way, they have different practices, they have a different story that makes up their life. How exactly does that happen? Most of us would think that happens logically or rationally. At one point in our lives or in those people's lives, they decided to believe something different and to act a certain way that was different. Because we like to believe that we're logical and rational people. What, what most sociologists, uh, sociologists have found is, is that's not how it usually happens. It's not how conversion happens. Now that's how we'll tell the story that's how we'll rethink our history. You're, you'll realize, right, our memories are not very accurate. We like to, to come up with a story that we would have liked to experience. What they say, if you actually watch, like if you just watch from a distance and record timeline and events and things like that, the moment a person starts to say they're converted or they confess some new kind of way of life or belief, usually it's not like they're walking down the street and there's a street preacher and they're like, you have interesting ideas. And he's telling them, and they're weighing that against what they used to believe. And they're like, oh, I guess that's right. Yeah, what do I need to do now, right? It's usually when there's a tipping point in their life. And most of their relationships, most of the people that provide them support, emotional, mental, physical, spiritual support, are part of that other group. So where I was once surrounded by this group of people, and they were my community. They were the people who cared for me, who made my life made sense. At some point I realized... I was in a different community. I was re-socialized. I was surrounded by different relationships, and I decided I'm part of this community now. I wonder what would happen if we thought of evangelism less as trying to convince people, going to the workplace and trying to find somebody to convince, right? Which, let's be honest, it's awkward, and it's messy, and it doesn't work, and you don't do it. I mean, we just don't do it, right? But what if we thought of it as loving and serving, and inviting someone into our community. What if as my team of people, my four or five brothers and sisters, we just said, you know what, let's love this person. Let's eat with them. Let's invite them to hang out with us. Let's ask how we can pray for them. Let's get to know them. Let's just say, make this kind of unspoken covenant among us that they're one of us now. And hopefully one day they'll realize it too. Hopefully one day they'll be close enough to our lives to, to want the life that we're experiencing to want to follow with us, want to be a part of what we have found ourselves in. I have a buddy of mine who's a pastor now, and we were talking this week about his conversion story. And we were kind of talking about this kind of reality that most people aren't logically kind of converted through reason. Um, and he was like, yeah, I mean, in my own life, I was kind of a, a an angry atheist, kind of a real hard liner. Like, I, not only did I not believe, but I, I didn't like Believers, right? I didn't like belief itself. I, I wanted away from that. But for whatever reason, I, I started going to this church occasionally, right? It's usually how conversion kind of starts. You don't really know what you're doing, but you just can't kind of keep yourself away. Something kind of drawing you to it. He was going to this church, and he didn't believe. He didn't like any of it, right? And, and he was like, looking back at this church, was kind of this weird church. They had all these altar calls every week, and every week it was like kind of the, the most joyous part of the service for me was not to go up to the altar call. Like, I am still not agreeing with you. I took your best shot, and I'm still here in my seat. See you next week, right? 
Um, and he says that there's a certain point where this group of people of the church he kind of befriended him, right? And they kind of became his community. And he describes his conversion as giving up to this group of people. And he's like, I'm not sure if they ever talked about it, if they like planned it out, but it felt like in my own life they decided we're not letting you go. There's nothing you can do. We're taking you hostage. You're going to be with us. We love you. You're our brother. We're going to pray for you and care for you and serve you and bless you. And there's just really nothing you can do about it. You're one of us now. And he describes his conversion experience when he actually went down to the altar one Sunday as, as kind of giving up and saying, these people have chosen me. These people have chosen me. I've seen the, the love that they have, the life that they share. And I'm in. I want to see what's, what it's about. I want to see what's happening. I think God gives the community a mission. And I think there's blessing found there. And then the last one, I think God blesses communities with his presence and his protection. Two things, um, and we'll wrap it up this morning. Um, one, it's interesting that, that Jesus gives Paul this really intimate vision. If you were to, to walk through the book of Acts closely, you see this is a rare occurrence for Jesus himself to show up and speak, even to Paul. Um, usually in the past, Paul, I mean, as conversion, he gets to speak to Jesus, but he gets some kind of angel as a messenger. Or even these real vague, like, senses of the Holy Spirit, where he's like, I felt like the Spirit wasn't leading me toward this place. And we're not sure exactly how that works out, right? But here, when Jesus wants him to dig deep roots with the community, he shows up in this intimate vision and says, stay here. Build a life with these people. I do think it's in community where God typically reveals himself, draws close, exactly at the time when we need it. Not a minute too soon, not a minute too late. Right when we need it, his presence shows up in community. And then I think, I mean, think through Jesus in the Gospels, right? When two or three are gathered, I am there. I mean, what, what's happening there? What's that about? This is community, right? I mean, I don't know if you've ever, hopefully we've all experienced this, where you have just been with a group of people and you leave going, Jesus was there. His presence was there in a way I could have never experienced by myself in my apartment, in my house, praying in my closet when I was with that group of believers and they were encouraging me and praying with me and we were confessing and reading the scriptures and taking communion together. Um, and then he gives us protection. So, so, I mean, there's this contrast. Jesus gives this vision. You're not going to be harmed. Stay in the city. And then the next thing we hear is they're being dragged before the proconsul, right, about to be getting beat up and kicked out of the city like usual. There's this tension here where we just got this word that we're going to stay and, and we're going to be good. And what happens is they do. They get protected. The, and so this is historically pretty relevant because... Um, the Jewish people had this kind of bargain with the Romans. So the Romans weren't compromisers. If you didn't do what they told you to do, they had a cross for that, right? It's like Apple, we've got an app for that. They've got a cross for that. But they learned that the Jewish people were really stubborn. And, and they just weren't going to come around to worshiping Roman gods or the Roman emperor. And so they strike to deal with the Jews. We're like, we'll let you do what you do as long as you promise to pray for the Roman government and the Roman emperor, you don't have to pray to him. And there's this kind of uneasy tension struck there. So Judaism had this kind of legal status in the Roman Empire where almost no other religions that opposed the Roman gods or the Roman emperor had, okay? And one of the big questions for the Christians was, did they share the same legal status? Were they allowed to do their thing too? And this was a real kind of big question. Are they part of the Jews or are they their own new religion? And if they were their own new religion... The Romans probably wouldn't have even cared about them. They wouldn't have even heard what it was about. They'd say, do what we tell you to do or we're going to kill you. And it seems like with this ruling, 
what the Rome has just said is, this is y'all's business. And this is a victory for the Christians. Because it means Rome sees Christians as a sect of Judaism. Correctly. And for the time, at least, says, y'all are covered. Just go figure it out on your own. They're protected for their mission to, to mature. Now, by 110 AD, the situation has changed. And it's a grave offense to be a Christian. You could be killed for it. In fact, there's all this sporadic persecution that would break out in different cities at different times. And the kind of official Roman policy, we've got letters written between governors and emperors um, that, that tell us kind of how this worked, was you bring them in and you try to get them to recant. And you really try. I mean, you want them to recant and to just do what you've asked them to do so you don't have to kill them. But if they won't, after consistent um, kind of begging and consistent kind of prodding, then make an example of them. Kill them. That's what happens. Something switched here. Notice again, I, I, would, I would say just like God's presence shows up in communities when it's needed, God's protection shows up in communities when it's needed. Not a moment too early, not a moment too late. There's something about the church being persecuted in 180 and, and on that caused the church to explode. That at that time, in those locations, caused the gospel to be real. And their witness to the resurrection to be, to be magnificent in a way that changed the world. At this time, though, they needed protection. They needed time to build roots as a church in their city. And the community, I think, always finds God's presence and his protection in just the ways they need it. Just the times that they need it. So my encouragement to you would be, as we head into this Advent season, to one Praise God for his, his, his community that he's created, for the group of people he's created that he has commanded. He said, that is where my blessing will be found. And then two, I mean, see, do you have that community? Are you living in that community? Do you, do you have those, can you see those signs, those markers around you? And if not, how do you get there? What do you do about that? I would say a good first step would be to eat, have meals, build relationships, get to, to know somebody. FC Cube, though, is, it's, it's God's idea. Community is God's idea. And, and for you and I to find the blessing that Christ has come for us to have, we're going to find it with these broken, messed up people together. And it's, it's kind of a disappointing message because people can be messy and people can, can be annoying and people can get in your way and in your plans. I, I uh, interviewed a few pastors recently for a project I was doing, and one of the questions I interviewed uh, or asked them was, how has your vision of church changed since you started ministering? And there were youth pastors in the, in the survey, and there were youth pastors, and there were people who had just started this year, and people who had been there for 15, 20 years. And every single one of them had the same exact answer for that question. And they said, when I started ministry, I thought the people who would be with me, the people I would find and develop and create, <laughs> disciple, would be on fire for Christ. And we'd be 110% at all times in our lives. And we wouldn't doubt. I mean, we would go knock the gates of hell down. And they all said, what I realized is, is people are messy. <laughs> and Christianity takes a long time. And there's this beauty that's found in the brokenness. Even when it's cutting. Even when it hurts. Like the stained glass that you step back from. And you kind of lose the jaggedness of it and see the, the big picture. The big picture, I think, is God's blessing. It's this command that life will be found here. Let's pray together. Father, we, we love you. We thank you for your scriptures. We thank you for the church that you have created. We thank you for um, your entrance and coming into our world. 
Now we thank you for seasons in our life where we can remember and celebrate. Uh, we ask that you would continue to be with us, Father, that you would continue to reveal yourself to us, that, that we would be able to find ourselves in places of community and places of, of life um, where your presence, your blessing, your anointing is there and it falls on us, Father. We pray that as a community we would uh, grow and mature and, and and be thankful for the time you've given us to do that. We pray as a community that we would fulfill our mission and see the people you have around us. And we pray as a community that we would um, just be able to sense and feel and expect and give thanks for your presence and your protection on us, Father. We love you. It's in your son's powerful name that all of God's people said. Amen.